Where the heck do mountains come from? Why are diamonds so hard? And is salt the only material with a strong flavor? Today, we're learning about geology, and I'm here to ask the real questions about everything from pebbles to pyrite to pyroclastic flow. So get comfortable, because it's time to learn some things. Hello. Hi, Sage. Are we good? Yes. Yes, we're good. Beautiful. Everything, everything works beautifully. Sage, you just just talk a little bit and everyone in chat let us know how the levels are. But talk, talk, uh, talk. yeah. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show, Sage. And welcome to the show, everybody in chat. And again, thank you all for the follows. Everyone that's coming early, you guys are the best. Um, this is the Duke Lance Things podcast, and we're join joined by Rocket Sage. So, Hi. hello. All right, okay. so for those of you who don't know, Sage is a geologist and university instructor, so kind of the perfect guest for the show. So Sage, if you want to tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into it. Sure. My name's Sage, or Rocket Sage, as you probably know me. I'm a geologist and a streamer. I play a variety of video games as well as scream about rocks and volcanoes and earthquakes and all sorts of climate issues and whatnot. So feel free, yeah, to ask questions whenever Sir Duke says it's okay. I Love the earth sciences very, very much. And I love teaching at the university that's local to me as well. Which, yeah, I, I was saying before, and I, I, I'll repeat it again, kind of the perfect guest, because not only do you have a wealth of knowledge about a subject that I know literally nothing about, it's your job to teach it to people. Yeah. And on top of that, as a content creator, we're in that, that same realm, uh, a science communicator on Twitch, part of the Knowledge yes. Foundation, Knowledge Fellowship? Yes, Knowledge, knowledge Fellowship. Fellowship. Yeah, we yeah. founded that in, I want to say, 2017, and it just houses a bunch of educational content creators. Tons of different topics. It's, and it's crazy. we were talking about beforehand that we might potentially try and get some of those on the show as well, mm -hmm. which uh, some of the other members, which would be incredible because, again, people also science communicators like yourself. So um, are hopefully willing to share a bunch bunch of new things for me to learn. So that would be fun as well. I'm sure they will. Um, They're very, very friendly. How... How are you, by the way? Because I'm doing we had good. to postpone because you were recovering from COVID, which was just the best timing. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm still coming off of that. So I might sound a little bit weird or look a little bit tired, and that's really the only reason why. It's just because I'm I think day nine now. I'm almost like recovered, I think. But even when the symptoms are gone, I still have to take a test and make sure I can go out and about and do things again. Yeah. Uh, I somehow, I think I've managed to avoid it throughout the entirety of the pandemic, but that's mostly because I don't leave the house. Yes. So that, that helps. Um, but yeah. Play Magic that, the Gathering. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You went to like a, a tournament or something? like a. Yeah, I just wanted to play Magic cards. <laughs> I just wanted to play Magic. <laughs> oh, man. Do, just humor me here. Do Magic the Gathering tournaments smell as bad as people say? Well, I can't smell anything right now, but yes, that's actually, kind of a blessing. They are pretty bad. Some of them are real bad. There was the last one didn't smell at all, and it was bigger. The one prior to that, or at a different place, was pretty smelly. Oh god. Um, yeah. So, so I, before we get into sort of just straight up rocks, as much as we love rocks, um, how so? How long have you been one? I guess studying geology in general, and how long have you been teaching it? I've been studying geology since I was, I think, 18 or 19, and I'm 36 now. 
because I'm so old almost half your life. Yeah, basically almost half my life. Good God. I did yeah. take a break for a few years because I uh, did double major in religious studies and geology. And uh, then I got a an NSF grant for my master's in geology. And I'm like, I'm not walking away from that. I love this stuff. And I just constantly worked in the lab. And uh, at the very end of my master's, my advisor was amazing. He was, I could not have had a better advisor. And he was basically on his way out the door. He was going on sabbatical or retiring. No, he was retiring, but he was on a six month sabbatical and he was gone ice climbing for three months. And I was just waiting on my edit of my thesis to graduate. So I was just kind of chilling, uh, working the SEM lab because I ran that for people. And, and then I, I, was asked if I wanted to teach something and I'm like yes I don't have TA experience I need that for my PhD um, please I would love some teaching experience and it just so happened that I kind of just fell in love with it and I did start my PhD but I came back to continue teaching I just I fell so, in love with it just just a complete sidetrack what do you do in a geology lab just depends on the lab I mean we've got a cold storage room for lake core sediment like you actually they're they're core that are like circular in shape and so they they drill down into old lake sediment and then pull that lake sediment up but you have to keep right. it in order in the same exact um way essentially you can break it apart into pieces but you still have to keep it in order and then they put it in a refrigerated cold storage room and that's one of the areas and we've got another area with a scanning electron microscope that has literally an electron beam just shooting it samples in a vacuum and that thing's a half yeah, million dollar machine where you see like really 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 tiny shit like it's two hundred thousand times magnification mm -hmm. okay you can see three-dimensional um figures or you can look at the chemical composition of things and it's pretty it's i love that thing then there's rock microscopes which we call my petrographic microscopes and they they polarize and cross polarize the light so we can see various things in extremely thin cut rocks on thin section. You, I mean, I'm talking like 20, 25 millimeters, micrometers thin, typically. Mm. Uh, not nano, so, nano would be a too, too thin. Yeah, nano is like really, really, really yeah. thin. Um, <clears throat> so, okay, oh, again, I, I'm just gonna, too. I'm gonna just follow this derailment. You, 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 you drill a, a big, what, cylinder out of a yeah. lake bed? Yeah, and then you, you basically it push it in, in and, and it's not really that deep, but yeah, you refrigerate it to keep it um, dry and to keep it intact. Um, usually, so they're is wrapped. this like you take it over like a series of time to see how it changes, mm -hmm. or are you mm -hmm. re like just looking into the composition of it? Both. So you would look at it. That's why you want to keep it in order because the topmost right. layer is going to so, be the yeah, youngest. Right. Okay. And you want to keep it all in order. Even if you break it up, you know which is the end of each piece and where it starts again. And then you look at things like pollen. Typically, those are used for climate stuff. So you look at the various types of pollen in the lake to get a proxy of the climate changes in the area. Oh, man. It's pretty dope. Just get into the, just get into the climate change real quick. I was saying, Ali, it's really, really warm today. Yeah. And something uh, sort of sparks my interest. Like a couple of days ago, that basically said... <clears throat> And we're not going to get all into like the whole climate change of it all. But I read something that essentially said that heat waves are going to be getting like earlier in the year yeah. because of because of climate change, which sucks. And we're feeling it here in the UK because we don't have AC or anything. Mm -mm. So, OK, we'll, we'll talk about going up by this example specifically. 
what do you what do you look for in say the the pollen or just like the like the composition of of s sort of samples that you would take from a lake that would indicate climate change like what what so, about that composition is kind of indicating change a really in the easy example is to compare for example grass pollen species versus forest or or pine needle pollen species so pine trees tend to grow in very cold environments and um, grass tends to grow in warmer environments. So that's just a very kind of blanket, easy example. So basically you're, you're comparing two different species of pollen yeah. in the core to determine, okay, during this time it was primarily pine needles. During this time it was primarily grass. During this time pine, grass, et cetera, et cetera. And then you figure out the length of time that's actually surpassed based on maybe carbon that's in your, your samples or... Um, you can just determine it based on a variety of other features and, and correlate it with other studies globally to get a, a really good match. And typically, there was one lake done out here called Tulare Lake that is a dry lake bed now, which is why we can get the cores. And we've actually matched it up to several global lakes. And this this type of work, this this pollen counting is what it's called, isn't actually anything I did firsthand, but one of my best friends did a lot of this work. So I was right there with her while she was doing hers. Meanwhile, I was doing SEM work on, on old oil reservoirs to determine whether or not we could pump CO2 into them to mitigate climate change. So we are kind of working right. simultaneously in the department. There are groups of students working on modeling climate, which is what the pollen does, and there are groups of students working on mitigating the changes of, of climate in the future. And it was pretty, it was a really good department. It was really, really fun, and it is a good department still. Not to get, like, doom and gloom from oh, yeah, the jump. No. But like being in that kind of work with the direction that like every basically sort of every every scientist is saying the direction the world is going is that scary like especially when you're sort of measuring say like the the rates or uh, like your friend was doing or you're looking at you know mitigating like is, do you start to kind of see that. I mean, is it is it optimistic? Do you see that there are big changes that we can make in that field that are going to help a lot? Or is it like, oh, th this problem is a lot worse than we thought? Yes and yes. Uh, oh, God, great. It's very scary. It's very scary. I, I still very much remember being in my bachelor's program. We're currently at over 400 parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere. Um, mm -hmm. Normally, the baseline is around 280. The natural world changes in climate because... Climate changes naturally all the time yeah. and it has in the past. It usually fluctuates around 280 parts per million, up and down, up and down, but it always kind of averages around that. We surpassed 400 parts per million. We're currently above, I believe, 415 parts per million. And I remember sitting in a classroom. Um, it was a junior or senior level course. Maybe it was structure or something. I don't remember. But I just remember the professor stopping everybody. We were going over the, the CO2 atmospheric parts in, or the, 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 the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it was at 390-something. And he's like, I, I dread the day that it surpasses 400, and here we are sitting at 415, and I'm like, ouch, that memory will never, ever go away out of my mind. So it is scary, um, but I've also worked on a variety of methods to try to mitigate that, and yes, I do think that there is a chance if people give it the chance. That's the yeah. thing. Um, and that and we need to share the information about the solutions um, with transparency, not just pretend that they're all golden, magical solutions, because nothing is perfect. Everything has pros and cons. 
There's no silver bullet. To no, but I think with all change. these different I, I, methods, we've got a change. There's also a lot of contributors, right? It's not just, yes. you know, there's not just one thing that's going to fix no. it all. But yeah. Um, so I, I mean, when I asked sort of initially when, when we were sort of, you know, getting the plans for this together and I said, sort of what's your specialty right now in geology? And you said that, you know, right now your, your sort of research study primarily was in uh, I guess like a assessing old oil yeah. wells, yeah. for want of a better word, and just seeing basically how much CO2 we can squeeze into one of those bad mm -hmm. boys. So like, I'm sure there's a wide range, right? But I mean, oil wells must be freaking huge, right? They, I mean, they, it just depends on the oil reservoir. I mean, basically in the early 1900s when people discovered oil out here, uh, they just kind of, a lot of it was high pressure, such that you could just kind of tap into the well and it would, there were a lot of gushers um, yeah. back then. And they aren't really existing anymore because we've basically tapped into all of those. Some of those surficial wells may have been pretty small, um, but since then they've done a ton of oil, oil exploration out in Texas, California, the Dakotas where they're fracking a lot. And um, they've basically, they've for the most part found most of the giant oil reservoirs i don't know that there's much in the in the way of exploration left um, most geologists that are hired into oil are for um production not for exploration so two different geologists yeah kind of uh different kinds of jobs so now they're working on getting more oil out of the reservoirs and that's typically what the geologists do instead of finding new oil reservoirs um yeah that's basically all there is in the dakotas the bakken formation Lots it's of a, oil. It's a it's a extremely impermeable layer of oil rich rock that they have to frack to get the oil out of because it just doesn't flow otherwise. Which is blasting gas down and forcing the oil out. How how does how does fracking work? So they drill a pipe like you would in any oil situation. So they drill a pipe right. down, but then they'll often drill horizontally into a layer that is um, extremely difficult to pull any oil out of it's impermeable so maybe those the spaces where the oil exists aren't connected so they can't flow out right so they they drill into this layer horizontally and the pipe is perforated so there's tons of little holes all throughout the pipe and then they pump this mixture of water uh sediment oh, right. and a variety of just materials some chemical substances and just shove pressure via water and sediment into these perforated holes through the pipe thereby cracking the rock open and then they allow for oil to flow. Um, so the fracking process, as well as the pumping of materials down into the earth itself, that that increased amount of pressure is what's causing the hydraulic, um, or what's causing the induced earthquakes. But all of the oil industry uh, actually causes induced earthquakes just by drilling wells and pumping induced or wastewater back into reservoirs. Yeah, I think it's. There, there was, there's always that sort of hesitation where, oh, we've been drilling oil for like mm. literally a century, but fracking is kind of this seemingly like newfangled method and, and yeah. people are very sort of hesitant to just jump in and start blasting rocks apart with Well, and it makes sense when you all pressure. of a sudden are, they're drilling in an area they hadn't drilled before because they found out yeah. that they can frack all this material and you're suddenly experiencing induced earthquakes out in Oklahoma. That's scary. I can imagine yeah. why people would be upset about it. So to go to go back, I just back to the sort of filling old oil wells with CO two. How yeah. do you harness CO two from the atmosphere and then get it down there and keep it down there? 
There are multiple ways that they're working on. There's direct air capture, which is quite frankly, very expensive. So they basically, there's a, if you want to look it up, ORCA, O-R-C-A, as a program, I think it's in either Iceland or Sweden or Norway or something. I can't remember where, but somewhere in the Scandinavian part of the world. And um, there's, uh, it's called ORCA. They basically have these giant fans. They're like three fans high, and I don't even know how many fans wide, but they basically directly capture the air, filter out the CO2, and then they would either pump it into water to carbonate it, like in the case of Iceland. So they just pump carbonated water into the ground in Iceland. And the rock just happens to have a ton of calcium in it because of all the volcanic activity there and the type oh, of rock okay. that's made. So what happens is the CO2 that's pumped in there in the carbonated water bonds preferentially with the calcium, creating a beautiful long-term mineral that will stay there for millions of years. So that's the best case scenario. The direct air capture right. portion, however, is expensive as fuck. Excuse my French. It's expensive. It's very it's it's very hard to filter out specifically, I don't know, just the CO2. And I assume that maybe they're working on the nitrous oxide and the methane and the other greenhouse gases. There's six major greenhouse gases that they're concerned about. The methane, the nitrous oxide, and the um, CO2 are the big, the big three, though, that most right. people know about. So it's expensive as fuck to get the direct air capture. But there's another method. You can actually just directly capture from factories that are producing a lot of CO2, refineries that are producing a lot of CO2. So instead of all that stuff coming out of smokestacks, and by the way, when you see a documentary with a smokestack, 99% of the time, it's water vapor. Those big white cloudy yeah, poofs, water vapor. The, the big cooling dramatic. towers is like always imagery of, of it's so dramatic silly. industry. But it's, yeah, it's... it's you never yeah, see the, the CO2. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, they directly would just, instead of letting it out into the atmosphere, capture it. And in this method, what they would do is turn it into a supercritical fluid, which is not just a fluid, but it's a fluid that's under immense, immense amounts of pressure such that it is called a supercritical fluid. And it must be kept under high pressure conditions, which luckily those oil reservoirs are under high pressure conditions. Because, well, why? Right. There's so much rock on top of them. They're in the ground. So they're surrounded by pressure. Yeah, same so, sort of reason that when they were first tapped into, they, you got, you know, gushers. fountains of, of oil. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly. So you just shove CO2 down there instead, and it'll and it, be in that high-pressure environment. Yeah, and so ideally, so, in, as a supercritical fluid, it shouldn't leak. So there are a series of requirements the government in the U.S. has for that type of CO2 sequestration. So that it's not going to explode or Ideally. some other how. <laughs> yeah. But they've okay. only got it um, to last for about a thousand years, which isn't very long. Uh, yeah, but it's one of those. We'll all be dead by then. You know, they can figure it out down the line. Um, okay. Well, okay. So um, obviously that was I know, fascinating. I know, I'm, I know, I know. I'm really glad to be able to just like, just kind of like cherry pick one tiny thing and just yeah. delve into that. That's beautiful you, you can um, ask whatever yeah I don't well, mind. well yeah to 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 completely change pace is salt the only rock that tastes good no, um, depends on what or rather you think that has good. a flavor it, okay that has a flavor i mean of I course mean, you know like sulfur smells bad right like that yes. that's that's a pretty easy one i mean i think bad? almost anybody could i i don't know i've never licked it can i you imagine 70 percent of your taste is smell so it's got to be 
nasty. Yeah, gotta but be like, nasty. I don't know. Coffee tastes worse than it smells. So no. like, what if sulfur? I love my better see than this coffee. Because yeah, okay, delicious. but how much of that is like sugar or you, you know, or like if you just take raw. Listen, I feel like most people could agree coffee smells great, but not everyone likes the taste of just black coffee. So maybe sulfur maybe you've not had good black coffee. Really bad. <laughs> not sulfur. I have no idea how sulfur. You know, they taste. make coffee out of cat poop. <laughs> they like shut up. Just yeah, they have the. There are these I will cats, not eat the cat like poop. Eat. They eat the beans and then they poop the beans and then they make coffee with the beans out of cat poop well like the beans themselves like the actual coffee beans are eaten by cats and then pooped out and then i think they they, they treat them and roast them but there's like i guess it goes through some kind of process in the digestion of the cat that like makes it delicious somehow does it's it really kill expensive. the toxoplasmosis so you don't get those brain worms that make you want to be a crazy cat lady i i, I mean they roast them and stuff so i'm sure that's fine <laughs> Oh my god, pound, I have so many questions. For, for the cat poop coffee. I can't answer too many questions about cat poop coffee. I just, I just <laughs> How did um, this turn into a cat poop just... coffee stream? So, okay. <laughs> I'm going to get this wrong. Sodium chloride. So halite, halite or, or table salt isn't the only mineral that that has a salty or different taste. It's one of the easiest to identify because of its cubic shape naturally and its salty taste. But there's another mineral called sylvite. And sylvite okay. looks like halite often, but it has a bitter, bitter, salty taste. So that's actually one way you would differentiate the two. Um, like worse? So, so, or like, uh, I guess like really off-putting compared to I salt. I think it's off-putting. Like I've neutral. never actually tried it. I've just actually heard that it's it's a it's a real bitter um, and salty taste. And that's it's extremely easy to differentiate. Most minerals really just don't taste like anything. Like I've, I've kind of, I've, in my early career, I would try to lick, like licks a lot of rocks. And, yeah, and I, you know, they don't really, they don't really taste like much, unless there's dirt on them. I suppose then they might taste a little bit like dirt. We do put dirt on our teeth, to uh, in the field, and this is a weird one I know, to determine the difference of grain size between clay and silt, because clay and silt are the smallest, and you can't differentiate them with your eye. But you can feel grit of silt on your teeth and not of clay. So we do that sometimes. Just, we don't eat the dirt. We just put it on our teeth. But you teeth. rub it on your teeth. S between silt and clay specifically, you're like, oh, yeah. that's really gritty. I guess that's silt. Shut yeah, up, that, Luga. That's an, inter <laughs> that's an interesting practice. Okay. Next little just random question. This is for the sake of my own curiosity. What is it that makes... A mineral translucent versus opaque. Like what um, quality impurities. is it? Impurities typically, uh, or if it's a metallic mineral. So anything that is considered metallic, and what this means is basically, metallic minerals are so so shiny that they reflect basically all light back. And this is kind of a difficult property to imagine because you can imagine that there are a lot of impurities or imperfections on the surface of a mineral. So you might have pits and grooves that uh, affect the reflectivity, but it's still going to be extremely shiny. And sometimes you might have oxidation, so it dulls and things like that. But they're on the thin section scale, still going to be opaque. And they're, um, Wait, so something like a really uh, like pure quartz, for example. Quartz is not is... a metallic. So that one right. is just SiO2, right? Silica and silicon and oxygen. And if it's pure, if there's nothing in it, like 
For example, and let me show you a couple of what I mean. Oh, the rocks are coming out. Here we go. For anyone on the audio-only version, Sage is going to grab a rock right now. So these are all types of quartz. They're all different colors. Multiple rocks. And this is one of the reasons why I think uh, identifying color or identifying a mineral by, based on its color is a is a very very bad thing to do. Um, and there are specific exceptions though, like malachite and azurite are pretty easily identifiable, easily identifiable based on their luster and their color. But typically, this is just clear quartz, right? It's just silicon oxygen. There's really not any impurities in here such that it's going to be opaque. Um, Anytime you get an opaque type of quartz, there's going to be impurities. So here I've got some smoky quartz. Okay. There's some of the clear quartz at the bottom, but uh, this means that there's a little bit of iron trapped. In fact, both amethyst and smoky quartz have iron in the crystal lattice trapped, but it's negligible. It's less than 1% of the mineral. So it's not but included in the chemical formula. But enough to change its appearance pretty considerably. Just enough to change its color. So the iron in this amethyst and the iron in this smoky quartz have been exposed to different amounts of heat, which is why the smoky quartz is kind of a gray and this one's purple. Um, and then you've got, you can have hematite. You can have other minerals actually as impurities in a different mineral such that it turns an opaque red. This has um, hematite in it. It's an iron oxide. And it's, so that's uh, quart like quartz plus iron oxide, I guess. Well, it's still considered quartz, but it it does have a yeah. name. It's a German name that I always forget. Uh, <laughs> in English, we call it ferrogenous quartz because it's iron rich. But right, uh, yeah, it's still quartz. It's just and there's no way red. to like extract the iron from something like that. That it's just completely like bonded in there. You wouldn't want to because it'd be negligible amounts. Right. I mean, you wouldn't be able to get very much out of it. You may as well just. Mine hematite, which is what they do. So you said quartz is just silicon and oxygen. Mm-hmm. It's this. Right. This is the so component which, elementally. I mean, glass is what? It's a lot of silicon, if I remember correctly. Material science is really awesome. Like, yeah, like household glasses is also, it's just, at least it's, as far as I know, silicon, right? Because it's like sand. In every video game that I've played, you take sand and you put it in the furnace and you get glass out. Like, I'm sure that's how it works in real life. It's very silicon rich, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but they can put other stuff in it to make it harder or a little bit different. I mean, like there's different lusters like on different kinds of glass for museum materials and things like that. And I don't know what all the little elements are that go into each of those, but I know okay. they're extremely interesting. This is a weird question. Mm. A little bit of... It's just something popped into my head. So... Old, this might apply to all glass, but I could be completely wrong, is, okay. Something about glass being fluid, okay? Oh, glass is, is this... amorphous. Okay. So because it's a solid, but it's an amorphous solid. We have some really old churches in the UK, for example. The, the windows, there's like, oh, the oldest stained glass window in Britain or something. It's like 1,100 years old. They end up like thicker at the bottom so over I'm gonna, time. I'm going to burst your bubble. That's actually a, um, a myth. That's a myth? Yeah. Okay. Burst the bubble. Now I'm excited. Okay. Glass is actually very amorphous. It's an amorphous solid, but it does not flow 
fast enough to get thicker at the bottom of those windows. Instead, Even over a thousand years? Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe maybe you might see some negligible changes over a thousand years, but none of those windows, I think, are even that old. Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure. They I'm might pretty, be, but... Like, I could be wrong. It, I think it does take quite a bit of time. Uh, yeah. What actually is the case, what they found out is it's, a, it's the production of those windows back in the day was not perfect. So they were often... Right. Variable, variable thicknesses, so they would put the thicker parts at the bottom, I think because it was more stable. That makes sense. I'm sure there's some, I don't know, ancient Norman turning in his grave or something that you're talking yeah. shit on his glass-making practices, but I know, right? that also They're makes more, <laughs> more sense. But no, I, was, um, I, I believed the same thing for a very long time, that glass was just flowing like that, but we, I, I read a paper about it, and glass can't flow that fast. Damn. Damn. Yeah. So, so a, what does amorphous mean exactly? It means that there really isn't any, there aren't any bonds in the in the material that are keeping it technically. I, it has no no crystalline structure. It has no internal structure whatsoever. So nothing is really bonded in any specific way. It's kind of all haphazard and and basically the same in every direction, and it allows everything to kind of just flow. It's the same with. Um, obsidian obsidian cools so quickly there really isn't any time for uh an internal structure to to form that's that that's really interesting mm -hmm. excuse me yeah um, i think so okay what contributes so, to how like brittle something is because glass is obviously very like really brittle and and shatters easily that's such a good question that's um that actually just has to do with bond types Okay. It just has to do with what kind of chemical bonds are bonding those elements together. And, for example, diamond being as hard as it is, is because it's all covalently bonded. And covalent bonds are the strongest bond type in chemistry that we know right. of. And uh, other... So let's, let's talk about graphite and your pencil for a second. It's the same chemically as a diamond. It's the exact same stuff. It's all carbon. carbon Diamonds are extremely hard. Crystal lattice something... Yeah, it's just carbon covalently bonded in all directions in the case of right. diamond. Yeah. Now you have graphite. Imagine two-dimensional planes of graphite all bonded together in these little hexagons, and it makes a sheet mm -hmm. of hexagons. Those sheets are then bonded together on top of one another, but instead of covalently bonded, they are bonded very weakly through forces called van der Waals. And so oh, they break man. very easily, and that's why we can write with a pencil. I'm having like flashbacks to like my first college year of chemistry that I flunked, <laughs> by the way. I'm a geologist, <laughs> like, not a chemist. See, yeah, but I, I can like see the, the the hexagons of 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 carbon and then like I think it's a such dotted a cool line mm -hmm. joining the I, and and I'm yeah. So diamonds just have like a very just the the COVID, they're all covalently bonded on like all possible angles for, mm -hmm. for i guess for want of a better word but yeah um yeah i remember i remember <laughs> i remember chemistry learning about graphite I love um, chemistry. okay if you if you one of one of my sort of spe very specific like interests that i often get taken away with um is nuclear physics so i i know this Ooh. isn't your field at all but, but why it. if you can answer this why is graphite used as the control rods in nuclear reactors specifically? Could you? I should know this. I think it has to do with neutralizing. Fuck, I don't remember. Uh, I'm, I don't want to get the wrong fine answer. If you can't. 
we're just talking about graphite in my head. I'm like, oh man, like it's I know they are used as control rods, rods in uranium uh, reactors, but I don't think they're going to be, be okay. necessary in thorium ones, if I remember correctly. And this is all off of just my my top of my head memory. So please look up anything about physics and nuclear. I'm not a expert. I'm just in that gonna. Field. I'm just riffing here. Oh, that's fine. But could it could it be to do with the fact, like maybe maybe this will jog your memory? I'm completely making shit up. So the way that the uh, carbon is bonded in those layers, it, could it be that because there's there's some kind of free not free electron, but because it's not bonded completely, the, no. the whatever's flying around the reactor is going to bond to that instead? Or is it is just completely unrelated? I don't know. It could be. Okay, fair I enough. I mean, it has to do Any... with... Yeah, I, I just don't know. I wish I knew. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's that's, I, I, we, we got onto graphite and I'm like, oh, well, while we're here. <laughs> um, it, but yeah, it's completely, it, it's completely not even what we're here to talk about. Uh, all right. And one other thing, little kind of viral video I saw about bendy rocks. Okay. Oh, I have one. What's the deal with what's the deal? What's the deal with bendy rocks? As Sage goes to find a bendy rock. It's my flexible sandstone. This, yeah. Okay. Bends. Oh God, that is weird. It's very but bendy, why? but I have to be very careful with it. Now I can hear you again. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> what's so okay? Can you tell us what's going on in there? Yeah, it's a sandstone, and it's filled with a, a particular mineral called mica. Um, here's a big piece of mica. Mica oh, wow. is uh, it could be muscovite, biotite, phlogopite, lapidolite, uh, chromite. Or not chromite. Um, the chromium bearing one. I forgot the name of briefly, but. Fuchsite. Anyway, they form sheets, very, very thin sheets atomically, and it's kind of similar to graphite in the way I explained it. So they're bonded very well together in these sheets, but they peel extremely easily. Yeah, what? It looks like like peeling paint, kind of. Yeah, it, uh, it is. And uh, these are very sparkly minerals. They end up in makeup often. But this particular rock is so filled with mica that it actually is able to bend. That's bizarre i know someone when said you I found had this? two you didn't break one did you did i break one no well someone someone no. in chat said you had two so i'm like oh I god did. no i did not i don't break them usually just sometimes this rock was so expensive man I, I found it i'm just like i need this in my collection i've wanted it for so long and then I found Dare some. I ask how much? <laughs> I don't remember. I just remember it being expensive to me at the time. I think it was like 30 bucks. I mean, for a rock, it's kind of not cheap. You, you know, yeah, well, for a rock. it's That's pretty expensive. Let me put this away really quick. Especially, well, <clears throat> so anyone who's listening to the audio-only version, the, the sandstone itself was looked completely, like, unremarkable. The mica that is apparently in it really looks like... Yeah, layers of, of plastic, like, or, yeah. or if you've ever seen peeling paint on a build, uh, on like an old wall, like you could just peel the layers right off. Yeah, um, there might yeah, be it looks it, paint. It looks fairly unremarkable. Why. Yeah. But it's a bendy rock. That's, yeah. It is. It's this, and, and it's, it's super, super sparkly up close because of all the mica, like little pieces of mica in it. I, I can't imagine. Cute. And you mentioned mica's in makeup. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. kind of, it was like a bronze sort of color. 
Uh, um, just depends. I mean, there's greens, purples, browns, clear, oh. uh, various shades of like browns. Well, okay, we talked about, I guess, transparency. So mm -hmm. what changes the the color? I guess it's impurities again. With, yeah, with the impurities. Iron. Well, there's a few ways in which color happens. You can have impurities. You can have, um, like in the case of uh, sapphire, it's a blue color because it has to do with the iron and the titanium exchanging electrons. And then the release of energy is what we see as blue. Um, and I don't remember Wait, the third method. So, was that in a sapphire? Mm-hmm. Iron and titanium. Yeah, iron and titanium are in sapphires. That makes it a blue. But you can have sapphires that are all, are all sorts of colors. If it's just aluminum oxygen, aluminum oxide like uh, corundum is, because it makes rubies, it makes sapphires, it makes really beautiful colors. But if it was pure, pure, it could potentially be clear if it was just aluminum that's oxygen. So, that's so strange to me. I, I don't know I don't know what assumption I made. I knew diamonds were carbon, but in my mm -hmm. head, like, I don't know. Things like like precious gemstones and stuff. I just kind of imagined they were like ore in a way, like they were just a, their own thing. But I, I guess yeah. it makes sense that they're so, yeah comprised they're very... of, of different minerals. Yeah, and and some minerals can make multiple gemstones. Like corundum makes rubies and sapphires. Rubies are are red because of the chromium as a impurity within them. In fact, I've I've seen people. Um, I've seen people make rubies in their microwave. Don't do this, by the way. You have to have a variety of different like crucibles and things to do this. And Take notes, rubies aren't. Oh, what's that? Learning how to make precious stones. Everyone take notes. Oh yeah, no, it's it's weird. But the thing is, is I I don't know if it has because it it cools so quickly. I I suspect it's not true ruby because if it cools that quickly, there's no time for a structure to form. So that's my theory. What is the uh, method here? Not not to go full Heisenberg, but well, he just how like, people he mixes microwave rubies. He makes he mixes aluminum and oxygen, little sand pebbles, I think, and he puts a little bit of chromium in there and he microwaves it, if I remember correctly. Just a bunch of rocks in a microwave. Yeah, and he puts it that's in a little crucible. Or that or he put it on a Bunsen burner or something, maybe? No, it was that, it was that actually like, legit. That sounds like one of those things where someone like breaks their iPhone screen and then they put it in the microwave to fix it and then you have like no, dozens of people no, put it. No, no, no. Oh, to, I, to charge it, you remember that? I Everyone do, was actually. trying to charge their iPhones in the microwaves. Oh, or, or, or turn off the, don't be tracked by the government, put your phone in the microwave, guys. Yeah, that kind of shit. Yeah, Kill, it kills the, I can't, I feel like I can't go on record saying it kills the tracking chip. So for, you know, all intents yeah. and purposes, this is a joke. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man, that was, that was, people believe anything. Yeah, they, people they, believe. They can you believe this? People believe glass is liquid and flows in windows. It's unbelievable. Some of the things people. We believe actually thought days. that was the case, though. A lot of people did. Well, yeah, and that's I know. What they just, thought for a long time. I'm just making fun of myself at this point. Oh no, I, I barely learned that recently. We got some. I mean, someone else. Someone said in the chat that English primary school teachers are kicking themselves after that one, and I feel it, man. Like, I really believe There's... that that really old window had flowed down I did <laughs> to too. the bottom. I did too for a long time, and then I learned well, the glass just doesn't flow that fast. I'm like, what? This is bullshit. So before before the the stream started, we were talking about a recent earthquake. Oh yeah, I need to I need um, to check that out. A pretty a pretty bad one. I, I I imagine you'll probably be looking into it on your own stream at some point. Um, something that especially geology wise, it's always interested me is plate tectonics. Okay. 
Mm. And I guess oftentimes plate tectonics can result in earthquakes and mountains. Yes, um, it can. So you, I don't know how. Okay, where where does a mountain come from? First of all, to to call back to the intro, what makes a mountain? Oof, I'm just looking at this earthquake really quick. It's bad, guys. Yeah, no. Here's a link if you want it. I'll just send it to you, Duke. But uh, mm. what makes a mountain? It depends on the tectonic regime. There are several ways in which tectonic plates can interact. So you can have collisional events, and that's essentially what you need for a mountain to form, or rifting. You can have mountains technically form because of volcanic activity. So let's focus on collision first. So let's say you have okay. two tectonic plates crashing into one another. As long as one of those is oceanic, so you have an oceanic piece of, of crust, oceanic crust is thin, it's dense, and it will always sink in the face of a continent. So the continents are buoyant and thick. That's why they're partially why they're above water. Um, it's partially just because of what they're made of. So you have a collisional event. The, the oceanic plate sinks, and it drags with it into the earth a ton of water, which then lowers the melting temperature of the surrounding mantle, generating melt, because the mantle isn't fluid. It's a, it's, it's a plastically deforming solid, so it's kind of like a putty that moves on the scale of millions and millions of years. And, okay. um, but with a little bit of water, because it's under so much pressure and heat, it suddenly is like, oh, chemical reactions, yay, I'm going to become liquid now. And then a little bit of melt develops above the subducting plate. That melt rises because it's more buoyant than the surrounding stuff that's cooler. And it pops up like little pimples, creating a chain of volcanoes along the subduction zone. So that's how volcanoes can form, one way in which they can form. You can have hot spots too, which we're still not sure why they happen. We know how they happen and what, like the effects of what they do. But hotspot volcanism is a is a very weird thing that is still misunderstood. We don't fully understand why they originate in the first place. And then uh, just to get a, a scary. it it's not scary because we know how they behave, mm. and we know what they're going to do as the plate continues to move. A new volcano will eventually pop up. It's not too horrifying, and it's usually well, it's not always an oceanic crust like Yellowstone is a is on a hotspot, for example. Um, there's no tectonic regime feeding that volcano. So right. that one's a bit, th that's the only outliers is the volcanoes that are made because of a hot spot, like Hawaii and Yellowstone. And well, oh, Iceland. Interesting. Mm. Hawaii, so, Yellowstone, Iceland. There, there's so many more too. There's, there's yeah. an abundance of them. So hotspot volcanoes, they aren't along the, essentially, I guess the lines where the plates kind of meet, but that's right. your average volcano kind of is. Yeah. But we don't, okay. So. Especially if you see chains or rows of volcanoes like the Cascades or yeah. the Appalachians, then something big tectonically happened to make that. If it's a How, smaller little chain of volcanoes, then it might be a hotspot. What sort of time, time scale are we talking about for like the formation of, of you know, something like the Cascades or something? Like, uh, I'm assuming millions of years. Yes. Hundreds of millions, how, maybe fifties of millions. Do we yes, know we how do. fast the plates move? Yes, we do. We can. They move at about the rate at which your fingernail grows on average. That's, That's on average like a though. lot. It, it is kind of, yeah. I mean, we can actually measure the amount that San Andreas moves. We can literally see the displacement just on curbsides and yards and things. 
There's yeah, areas like, where it just slowly continuously creeps rather than having bursts of earthquakes. You can actually just see the slow, I mean, not, you can't watch it move, but you can s come back in a f several months or something and see a small displacement. Yeah. Pull out a tape measure and be like, oh, that few millimeters crack has yeah, or more. grown or moved. That's mm -hmm. yeah, that does seem that that does seem like a lot. Do. Okay. So the Himalayas. Yes. For example. They are not is volcanic. the result of some kind of huge tectonic event. Yes. Two continental pieces of crust colliding. Remember when I Just, said you have to have an oceanic piece to subduct, to sink? Yeah. Well, in so the they're case both of the kind Himalayas, of mashing and going up? Mm -hmm. like, yep. So it's, are they still all moving? that material just goes up and into the earth. And so it just rises in both directions. Yes, it is still shoving itself. India is still shoving northward into Asia. So you think, does that mean that like Everest grows a little bit every year? Like, I believe so, yeah. Like just millimeters at a time, but Everest is getting taller. That's so... Um, Let me see, because it might be at a height now that the weathering is kind of keeping it in an equilibrium. Right. Yeah, that's something. How fast is Everest know. growing? Let's see here. 2.4 inches or one or six point one centimeters per year. Now I don't know if that accounts for if that's its total growth, um, in addition to weathering and erosion, or if that's just without weathering and erosion. I suspect it's the total amount. Most people don't take that into account. That's like the rate, I don't know. I was gonna say the rate of a person but i don't know people have growth spots and stuff you yeah, say like so a few inches a year so yeah 6.1 centimeters per year 2.4 inches roughly that um, that again that seems like not alarmingly fast but faster than i ever would have thought you know what i mean like yes yeah just a whole see i mean i don't know how how big a co the continental plates are pretty freaking huge they are Big and small, because plates are divided into microplates and minor plates. So you have major, minor, and microplates. And things get really, really complex structurally and tectonics because it's not just the big 12 plates, right? It's a million little tiny faults all over the place that are colliding and crashing and separating and sliding past one another. And it's just all over the planet constantly. And the quietest parts, I think of the earth are, are really underneath the ocean where uh, next to next to spreading ridges where you just kind of have those nice quiet abyssal plains. There's really not a lot going on tectonically in the abyssal plains, but um, yeah. Is the Mariana Trench? I suppose like is, the opposite of a mountain. It is actually. It's, it's the deepest trench that we have. It's the deepest point in the ocean that we know of. And yeah. I mean, we do know that because of satellite data now, so that's pretty easy to obtain. Now to I'm get down there is another story. Yeah. Tiny little submarines to measure it anymore. Exactly. So that's the deepest area, and it's caused by subduction. Anytime you get a subducting slab, you get a big trench like that, and that's why Japan has so many earthquakes and volcanic activity is because of that subducting slab right there that's creating that trench. Yeah, I was gonna. I, I was. I think I was gonna go there next because when. Um, Funnily enough, again, because of my fascination with nuclear physics as well, was looking so, at the the Fukushima disaster and everything. And like the the like the earthquake that happened there that caused the mm -hmm. tsunami, right? Mm -hmm. Or or yep. both exactly happening at the happened. same time. So the earthquake how, caused a tsunami. So the earthquake was, a, I guess, a result of some tectonic movement. Yes. 
So the you cause have... a huge like uh, trough to form in the. Well, I don't know. You could probably explain it better than me. But so how did that go down? So basically, you've got Japan. It's a continental yeah. piece of crust. You've got the subducting plate, and it tends to lock up. And then all of a sudden, you get this burst, this slip, such that the overriding plate slips vertically. And part of that overriding plate is underneath the sea. So when you get right. that vertical movement, it actually shoves water upward. And as that water is shoved upward, it's going to create space below where more water is going to fill in where it's being pushed up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So then you that, get a... that huge recession of water yes, away from exactly. the coastline. Yeah. So you get a huge recession of water caused by that bulge of water building up in a three-dimensional or a, yeah, a three-dimensional bulge basically. And then it slowly radiates out in 360 degrees as near field and far field tsunamis. The far field being things across the ocean, near field being Japan in this scenario. And then they the get kind of, hit the whole hard. coastline of Japan, I guess, just kind of. And those waves that. continue to disappear. They basically, multiple tsunami waves hit. It's just the first one is going to be the biggest. Yeah. Because there's then, a lot of water. It what happened with Fukushima is the the reactor was flooded. No, no, no. The power went out, and then the reactor. One of the reactors was flooded. Reactor four, and it um, ended up also going out. The backup generator. I'm sorry, not the reactor. The backup generator was flooded, and it went out. So both sets of power that they had to keep this thing cool weren't operational anymore and uh, reactor four then exploded which i find ironic because it was also reactor four in chernobyl the um not to i don't know not to risk getting slammed with libel on this on this podcast or anything like that but apparently uh, we're talking a time of like at least i think a decade the the company that oversaw the the you know maintenance of the fukushima power plant basically neglected to update their safety equipment over sort ah. of the, the course of like 10 years or something so I didn't know that. yeah so when the plant was put together they put it together with the the worst case scenario in mind uh when it was built and then years following i do remember that yes, several several different like uh, I, I think including the Japanese government, but several different bodies basically weighed in and said, hey, the new worst case scenario is a lot worse than you yeah. have prepared for. And even predicted essentially water as high as that tsunami that year. Uh, and they didn't update any of it. So, so that, they that's, did build that's a... Sea, they, they built a seawall for that prediction, I believe. And they, they the seawall wasn't still wasn't high enough. But the, the plant itself, basically, yeah. nothing changed. And and that's why things like the, the backup generators got got flooded and well, stuff. So, yeah, that's that's a little bit of fun corporate that's negligence. That's actually crazy. And I'm glad yeah. that I know that now because I'm a huge, I'm a huge advocate for nuclear energy. Um, personally, and most geologists I know are. And uh, I thought that was all natural disaster, which kind of paints nuclear as not great. But knowing that it's mostly user error again kind of well it's uh, disappointing yeah. and sad but it's also like okay so we can do this we just have to make sure we don't mess around right yeah I, and it, it was the same of course going back to chernobyl causing a lot of yeah. a lot of panic around nuclear energy but again 
it was down to negligence and poor operation yep. and stuff. But um, we can we can we can make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. And and again, uh, uh, and people say say this about Fukushima as well. It's like it was it was pretty prepared for both of those events, just not at the same time. I think was kind of the the sentiment of how like they they'd set it up to be ready for an earthquake. They'd set it up to be ready for a, a tsunami, just not the a huge earthquake and tsunami striking. Yeah. You know, as a result of one another the, uh, one the problem another is the is time. that they the the japanese at least the geologic people there that are studying they know very well so do geologists around the world know very very well that any kind of um subduction zone like that is going to cause mega thrust earthquakes occasionally causing earthquake or causing tsunamis and we've seen yeah. evidence of tsunamis on the coast of the pacific northwest during the 1700s for example from japan's earthquakes so we've known and they've known that they have these giant they're, they're comorbidities sort of thing it's like when there's an earthquake there's going to be a lot of water that follows mm -hmm. and uh they, they, the sh they probably is, should have been prepared for both well japan is one of the most prepared um countries in the world for earthquakes yeah uh, california and japan are probably two of the safest areas to live in in the face of earthquakes because of the engineering feats that have been done it's pretty amazing fortunately they're also you know Bad, well, today's a bad example to say so, but they're prepared in the face of earthquakes because they're in the face of earthquakes pretty yes. often. Whereas, you yes, know, exactly. I, I think I think I remember one earthquake that happened in the UK, and it was maybe ten years ago or a little more that there was like a tiny little earthquake in the UK, and it apparently woke people up, but it it was not that bad at all. I have no idea what caused it because I don't either. Yeah, we, we, we don't have anything going on. The, the the phrase pressure earthquake is in the back of my mind, but I don't I don't know if that's a thing. But yeah, it was like a it was like the market raisin earthquake. Yeah, you guys have no major boundaries yeah. around you. So in two thousand and eight, the market raisin earthquake, uh, it was on the twenty seventh of February two thousand and eight. Uh, it was a registered reading of five point two on the Richter scale. Uh, yeah, it was up in the north, and it, yeah, it was at like one in the morning, and I was I slept through it, but oh, apparently yeah, one person got hurt. Five point two anything to scuff at. I don't know why they're reporting it on the Richter. I thought they had changed all of them over to moment magnitude. Richter isn't accurate for anywhere other than Berkeley. Oh, it's 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 a good scale. It's very very good, and the moment magnitude is based off the Richter scale because they're both uh, logarithmic. It's just that the moment magnitude accounts for local tectonics, um, the area of displacement, the length of displacement, the magnitude, um, and maybe a couple of other variables. I can't remember. Apparently, really it impressive. was caused by the sudden rupture and motion along a strike slip fault beneath oh, Lincolnshire. Oh, so this kind of motion. Which is where I lived at the time, actually. That's San Andreas kind of motion. Those are going to be shallow, dangerous faults, or sh yeah, shallow and dangerous earthquakes. Typically, the bigger the the strike slip boundary, the typically the more dangerous. So the Anatolian fault in Turkey is an example of that. The two biggest the in the world I can think of. of Northern Europe are intraplate earthquakes, meaning they're not yes. close to tectonic plate boundaries. Most intraplate earthquakes are thought to be driven by distant tectonic stresses. Mm -hmm. Not of my depth here, but there you go. That's the one earthquake that I experienced while asleep. Intraplate just means in the middle of a plate yeah. without tectonics. So Australia, with if they have any kind of uh, tectonic, or I'm sorry, earthquakes in the middle of their country, that would be considered intraplate. 
because they don't they don't really have any major tectonic boundaries there. I mean, new ones could potentially develop, maybe a new spreading zone like in the East African Rift Zone. That's another way you can have volcanic activity without collision, is just two plates are spreading apart, thinning the crust enough that uh, you get what's called decompression melting because you're allowing for less pressure up on the mantle. So it starts to thin, or the, the crust above it starts to thin and all that release of pressure allows those very, very, very hot, hot material to start melting. So, let's see if I remember this right from like primary school, but it's crust, mantle. Yes. And then is it just outer core and inner core? Is it is yeah. it that, yeah? It's that simple. And the mantle is like the biggest yes. portion. It's like, yes. and it's, you said it's, you said you said it's plastic, like it's not liquid. It's plastically deforming, so like plastically putty. deforming. So you imagine gra glass breaks rigidly. So if you right. take a hammer to some frozen putty, let's say it's frozen in the freezer, so it's really really cold, and you take a hammer to it, it's not going to break. It's not going to shatter. It might dent a little bit. That's kind of like what the mantle is, but hot. <laughs> so what's okay? It's going to flow instead. That's a, what the mantle a, does. I know. This is random again, but like, what's the deepest we've ever, like, what's the deepest sort of man-made hole? Cola super How deep, deep have we ever drilled? in Russia. I, I think it's like 12,000 feet deep or deeper. Cola super deep borehole. The reason they had to stop drilling is because the pressure temperature conditions were, were too much for the equipment. So we had to stop. They had to stop. This is in Russia. Let's see how right. they got. Oh, 40,000 feet. I'm way off. 12,000 meters. Christ. My bad. 12,000 meters, 40,000 feet. And this was in 1989. I want to say they tried to re drill and they it, it died really quickly. How? Okay. okay. The, US, I, the U.S. had a similar project in 1957. Project Manhole? No, Mohole. <laughs> Mohole. Oh, my. <laughs> Check out my molehill. So, so okay, and that that does that penetrate the crust? Is it? Are we? How thick is the crust at that point? Oh. Oh God. The thinnest the crust really could be is. God, I don't know. The basin and range is really thin at forty uh, kilometers. That's really thin. That's super thin. I wonder how thin but, these are. I don't know what the thinnest. Forty thousand meters, I guess. The 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 oceanic crust is a lot thinner. It's like I don't know, down to as thin as about ten kilometers thick in some cases. But then getting through all of the pressure of the oceanic water, just to drill through the oceanic crust, would be a nightmare. And what what is the mantle made up of? It would there, I mean I don't imagine there's Pretty any tight. value in in getting. Want to see it? Sure. I have a piece of the mantle. Oh, shit. Time to see another rock. So this is some basalt. So sometimes when volcanoes erupt, if they are going through thin enough crust or they're really... Of a, uh, I'm going to get way too detailed. Anyway, so sometimes <laughs> when volcanoes erupt, um, they, they pull up pieces of the mantle. And those pieces are the green chunks here. Right. It looks so those are pieces of the mantle. They're mostly olivine. It's called peridotite. Um, so... It is, yeah, tons of olivine. 
It might be dunite. Mostly olivine. A, a very lot, green, green hue. Yes, that's the olivine. Uh, olivine is peridotite, or is, uh, I'm sorry, peridot. The gem peridot, if you're familiar. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Often. Um, it's a. It's not a very stable gem, though, at uh, surficial conditions, because it likes hot, hot conditions. It's usually solid in the mantle. Um, of course, it is extremely hot, but then it comes up and... So the mantle is kind of like, like chocolate chip cookie dough. <laughs> no, 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 because this is the lava. The black stuff is the lava, or the gray uh -huh. stuff. And it's basically flowing up through the mantle, right? And it's tearing these chunks of the mantle with it and bringing them up solid. They're, they're brought up solid. Otherwise, they wouldn't look like this. They would have melted and mixed in with the magma, becoming part of this. But instead, so... they were solidly ripped up and brought to the surface. <laughs> it's a lot of rocks down there, man. It's rocks all there the way are. down. It's just that only part. You have to understand that most of the mantle isn't molten. Only of little tiny pieces of the mantle are molten, or actually magma. And even in the magma chambers that do exist, they're only partially molten. Like solid minerals float around in magma chambers all the time, and that's there isn't a purely molten magma chamber that I know of. It's more like a slushy kind of a mix. So when they erupt, you often have little crystals and minerals in them. And not every single time. You can get a, a beautiful flow without huge crystals. But even in this, like if I rotate this, I see tiny sparkles. That to me indicates there's minerals in there. There's something else in there that's not just... Yeah, it's not just a homogenous melt. It never is. It's a very heterogeneous, constantly changing mess. Uh, magma and a magma studies mess. it is a beautiful mess but the study of magma and lava is a huge branch of geology in and of itself it's so chemically complex is there a difference between the two between magma and lava yes lava is on the surface of the earth magma is below the surface that's it it's kind of dumb how <laughs> um in, okay, I've seen, we've seen videos, especially from like Hawaii, when something erupts and there's just this slow crawling like mass of what is lava at that point. Now I know. Mm -hmm. And it's like coming across a road or something. How much heat radiates from that? Because you see people get pretty close. Like, I mean, I've never have, you been been, how, have you been that close to lava? Have you been? No, I no? wish. Damn. I used to have nightmares of it as a kid, but now I want to really bad. <laughs> I've never yeah, ever been to a lava lake. I've never seen a lava flow, and I am so ready for it. I am ready for it. Have you been, have you been to, like, uh, not inactive, dormant volcano? Mm -hmm. I guess, like... Oh, yeah. Um, the first one I think I remember going to is Crater Lake as a little girl. Crater Lake is a huge, huge volcano. In fact, um, it uh, that, that crater is... Was caused by a huge collapse from all the magma that spewed out of that volcano um, thousands of years ago, and uh, basically emptied the chamber such the overlying rock couldn't stay up. So it all collapsed inside. And the island that's in the middle of Crater Lake is a resurgent dome from magma refilling the chamber. From b below, from deep beneath. Mm -hmm. So inside it, the volcano, it, it, it's pushing all the rock up again. It blasted its freaking. Load. Top off. Yeah. Collapsed because it, it didn't have enough. 
yeah. left and then it's still just but it's still coming up but it's just too slow oh, yeah, to kind of maintain that that's wild oh no it's still active. i mean the resurgent dome on mount st helens was fucking crazy that thing was moving almost meters a day for a while a couple of years of ago just... they uh, did time lapses of all the rock spire just being pushed up from within it was crazy that completely like... solid rock oh, at what how how does this like how does the the rock so like magma that's erupted from volcanoes and making like new islands and things like that how does it get replenished from where it came from like what is stopping it from running out you know what i mean like what's stopping it all from essentially heat. being pushed out onto the surface and emptying whatever is holding it all in there heat earth has lots and lots of heat through radioactive so is decay. there like is there not convection currents but like is there something that's kind of yes uh, melting convection... other material and bringing it back in as material is being yes erupted so there is definitely there's definitely a cycle but it's not these nice beautiful circular convection currents like you see it's a very heterogeneous clusterfuck of a mess um it's just a nightmare of random subduction zones so you've got old crust sinking that's cold bringing down cold material um, but it's also causing melt to form, so it's bringing up warm material in response um, because the two major forms of melt are flux melting and, and decompression melting. So you get these two based on tectonics, but you're also getting um, subduction in some of those cases, causing more cold material again to recycle back in. So you have a driving force called slab pull and slab push, which are ultimately the controls on all of this. Um, Basically, the slab, once it's being pushed out by a spreading ridge, for example, it then kind of sinks into the earth and acts like an anchor and starts to pull itself down. So these things kind of drive themselves because of ultimately the heat and the recycling of that heat. If there was heat. no heat in the planet, and then it would all lock up and die. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so... Is this too much? Am I being too much? No, I'm, 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 I'm doing my best to take it all in. Okay, good. Because I know because there's a lot. Geology is a lot. The hardest thing, so as you explain stuff, I'm trying to like picture it in my mind. No, right, visuals like are so these, important for this science. All of these things, like all of yeah. the, because, you know, there's so, so many moving parts all the time, which is a little yes. hard to even like think about. There's the whole sort of, you know, you, you get existential and you think about how tiny we are in the universe and all of that. But even on our own planet, like there's so much just moving constantly. Yes. Um, and like, oh, this is just a Believe funny me, little... the existential dread is real in geology for me. I realize a little, how a little fun every single exercise. day. <laughs> a little fun exercise of like, if we got everyone, everyone on the world into the same place to jump, we would move the earth in its orbit like... A centimeter or less like yeah even yeah even compared to the planet like let alone in the in the universe we're very very small i mean i find it to be kind of beautiful though yeah i mean right because we all we all despite and... despite our insignificance we all have our own place isn't that amazing exactly that's um, exactly what I, I feel it's very humbling and very peaceful even yeah. like it, it used to cause me tons and tons of dread but now i just feel that okay, I'm part of this big cycle that is the Earth, and eventually all my atoms will go back into this cycle. That's I won't really part. be dead. I'll just be part of the Earth, and that's okay. Like, my consciousness little... probably won't be there, but... 
who knows, up upload it to know. the cloud in 20 years yeah, or whatever. And exactly. Then I can watch all my atoms forever. dissipate into the earth, I suppose. <laughs> As, uh, well, yeah. I kind of want to be... I want to be digital now. I want to see how the the I want to see how humanity fossilizes. I you know I'm sure I I want to know I see I want to know beyond that right. It would be yeah. cool to see how humanity fossilizes, but it's even it, like it's really interesting now, especially with how everything is. Thinking whatever the fuck finds us, if anything, in a oh, hundred thousand years, I yeah. don't even know. Probably probably nothing, but. If something was were to find us, because even now, there's uh, I can't remember the name of the the practice, but that the the practice of essentially creating um, signs and like icons for uh, biohazardous waste and like yes. nuclear waste and things like that, because when we bury, you know, a shitload of nuclear waste under a fuckload of concrete, and we put a <laughs> sign up. We have to kind of hope that. Because language changes so much and like, uh -huh. you know, we don't understand things from a thousand years ago. Are they going to know in a thousand years what that sign means when they find it? Or are they going to think, you know, are they going to start digging and then die because <laughs> because there's a bunch of hazardous waste down there? So, stuff like that is very interesting to me to think like I think so what's going to be understood from what we leave behind in a thousand years, especially so with the, much. like the rate of change and everything. I can't imagine it's going to be all correct. It'd be so funny to be like, and the humans did these things. Yeah, know. yeah. They called themselves mankind. Mankind. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that, that whole, just that whole process of, like, They'll just see the biohazard sign and be like, oh, how, what a pretty symbol. Must mean, must mean Must mean a playground. <laughs> yeah. We must yeah. dig. Um Jeez. That actually, some, something that was in the back of my mind earlier, that brings me back to it. How do we mine? How do we mine? fuel. Oh, through various rocks that contain either uranium or thorium. But is it safe? Like, how safe is it? Like, mm. how, do you, how do you do that on a safe, in a, I guess, in a safe way? That's a good question. I don't know what. Are there dudes down there in hazmat is. suits and excavators? Well, just usually pulling... monzonite and uranium, I thought, weren't too deep. I thought they might actually drill for those. I don't know. I don't know what the safety protocols are for uranium and thorium mining. And I want I to know so badly right ago, now. But... <laughs> yeah, there probably weren't any until about 15 years ago. Yeah. When the right. internet became a thing and everybody started sharing all this information and governments are like, oh shit guys, shit, they know. I mean, it was like, oh man. So to go back to one more time, I watch a YouTuber called Kyle Hill. He's he's the guy that I learned literally everything about nuclear disasters and, and nuclear physics and stuff. So he has a series talking, it's called Half-Life Histories and he talks about all this stuff. And man, the things that they were doing with, with like, nuclear physics in general and like the manhattan projects and stuff was just awful like so bad uh, someone There's in chat said uranium is not that dangerous so there you go yeah i don't um, think uh i don't think uranium 238 is all that dangerous just as a raw I guess it's when, when element you, but it, when mining it's not that bad it's purifying it processing it and turning it into fuel um it used to be a byproduct of mining thorium but it's actually being sought out now as there's several projects 
working on thorium salt reactors. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's actually way more common than uranium. Thorium is. Oh. Speaking of mining safety, did you did you see the meme of the guys having the um asbestos shoveling competition? Oh no. Did they wear masks? <laughs> no, this was like this was like two hundred years ago or something. It's like a black and white photo. <laughs> it's just a bunch of dudes outside of mine. <laughs> yeah, right. Mesothelioma. No, oh, oh, yeah. God. Yeah. I didn't I mean, know we mined asbestos. I didn't know that's I have a video of asbestos on my Instagram, but I only got it out once and I turned off my fan, I used gloves and a mask, and I'm like, this is a chrysotile, this is a mineral. It looks like danger cotton candy. Really? Wait, like it's... like fibrous? Yeah, dude, I have like... here, let me show you really quick. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, I gotta see this. <laughs> it it's it's crazy. It's it's definitely crazy looking. Um, I need to start doing more mineral videos now that I have a phone camera again. Oh, yeah, it looks like, it looks kind of like fur in a weird way. Like it's all these fibers. Yes. All in, in the same, so yeah, all of these like aligned fibers. I think this one should be it. Can I post a link? Oops. Oh, no. oh God. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Here, I'll, send it to I'll you. see. I see it. I'll, I see it. I think that's that's the one. Oh yeah, it's like a it's like matted hair. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. It's very. What fibrous. the heck did we use? Why was it in everything? It's what? a good um, uh, heat deterrent, or what is it? A uh, uh, fuck. What is it? Insulator. A fire, a fire retardant, right? Right, because it's in that's... like fireproof gloves yeah. and stuff like that. That's what I think it was for. Yeah, it's an insulator. Thank you. That's the word. I don't know what the hell's wrong with my brain. I have COVID brain. COVID brain. Great insulator and cheap. Because uh, nowadays we use fiberglass insulation, which is, I, I guess, I don't know why, fiberglass insulation. But it's like the man-made equivalent, right? It's these long f fibers of, uh, but we, we make it mm -hmm. ourselves, man-made fiberglass yeah. instead of mining asbestos. That's very interesting. Uh, to see something like that naturally occurring, like as a yeah. mineral, right? I know, like, isn't it crazy? Because it looks, yeah, I don't, it looks, uh, it looks organic. It looks biological, I should say. It looks living, uh, like I don't know, all these little strands of hair, kind of like a fungus. Yeah, um, it's very strange. <laughs> so. And yeah, it's scary I mean, to play with because you can't even see all the fibers. There's like they're like spider webs. Yeah, it, I mean, it, I feel like fiberglass behaves in a similar way. You can get fiberglass yeah. in your skin, and it'll like be really, really irritant. So apparently, the Romans would make tablecloths out of it, and it's asbestos. And when they were dirty, they would just stick it in a fire as a party trick. Because it's like, of course it can't burn. It's rocks, guys. Jesus Christ, the Romans are just like Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Let's burn this shit. Yeah, I, that, that's it, that's just, just I don't know. I can't imagine coming like coming across something like that in its natural state and just being like, oh, it's fibers of mineral? I'm, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, literal mineral fibers. And that's why fibrous is actually a term to describe mineral structures in some cases. Oh, because they are okay. naturally occurring. So there's 
when you are when you're looking at the qualities of a mineral, there's like several qualities in particular, right? That you're mm -hmm. that you're grading. Property, yeah, the physical properties. Yeah. Yeah, that's what. That's what one are way... those properties, and what what? I well, I guess we'll start off. What are each of those qualities or properties in a mineral that you're looking at? There's a lot. Oh, there's um, a lot. <laughs> so the definition of a mineral is that it's naturally occurring. Uh, it's um, solid, naturally occurring solid. Oh my gosh, chemically defined or chemically chemical definition. Um, crystal lattice, so it has a structure. Okay. Crystal structure. Oh my gosh, what's the fifth one? Naturally occurring, inorganic. So these are the these are the five things that make up a mineral. That is the definition of a mineral. It has to be naturally occurring. So you know, diamonds that are made in a lab can't technically be considered a mineral. They would just be said to be man-made, right? It's not that big a deal. Um, and technically, the ones in the man-made labs, like if you're looking for pure diamonds and things, just get a man-made one. Get a, I mean, they're going to yeah, be way more scam, pure right? than. Yeah, they Let's are. Be real. Um, but those are the those are the five definitions, and then you've got a lot of properties that we use to identify minerals, like cleavage, yeah. hardness, luster, um, sometimes color, um, tenacity. Is a, is a luster how shiny something is? Is that what luster mm -hmm. is? Yeah, that's how reflective, so like how much light reflects off of the mineral. Reflectivity index or something. Yeah, uh, yes. And that's... Uh, it's right off the top of my head, guys. I'm a genius. It's uh, how we basically classify minerals based on their shininess. And they each have a very specific index of refraction. So you can determine via chemistry and via microscopy, which is which just... Uh, in some cases, looking at the luster, but that's really pretty difficult. You use the luster as a kind of a baseline. Is it metallic or not, essentially? Right. And then you go from there to determine its hardness using a variety of tools. And hardness is just the ease to which you can scratch into a mineral. Um, and we use the most hardness scale for that. Right. Um, we can occasionally use color. You want to definitely write it down. We also use streak, which is the color of the mineral when it's powdered. And you do this by taking a ceramic or like a little white or black ceramic tile plate and you lay it on the counter and then you kind of just scrape the mineral back and forth Take on a credit tiny... card and yeah and you put it on the you you just drag some of the mineral across it trying to crumble pieces of it and it will often be a different color and if it is a different color then it's probably a metallic what's and the that's just a... what has the greatest difference in color between naturally occurring and what was it called the, the streak the streak yeah the streak I know streak hardness cleavage they're all kind of funny but um <laughs> the uh, hematite has a really really crazy streak because it's always going to be red brown but the mineral itself could look like shiny silver it could look kind of a, like a dark gray um, now chat if your streaks are red brown see a doctor first of all yeah and you might have hematite in your streaks yeah so I want that <laughs> I mean it's just oxygen um, and iron you... Yeah, rust, <laughs> thermite, in some mm. cases, something like that. I mean, yeah, that's why hematite looks so weird sometimes. Sometimes it looks just like rust, like a pile, like a little rock of bright red rust. Or yeah. it can look really metallic and shiny, but either way, it's going to have a red-brown streak. So, that, you know, yeah. Which, which, 
It's very strange. Because um, I'm thinking, like, if you, you take a piece of it and draw with it, like, chalk, like, I, that's what I'm thinking in my brain. Is like, I've got this yeah. shiny, shiny metallic rock, and then you just, like, chalk, but it's a red You want me to do it? Streak. You want me to show if, you? If you have some good examples, yeah. Yeah, let me grab some. Hematite's botryoidal texture is really weird. I'm going to have to look up the word botryoidal right now. Botryoidal, a shape reminiscent of a cluster of grapes, chiefly of minerals. Maybe the underside of my car is made of <laughs> made of hematite. I've been chugging water throughout this podcast because it's so warm. I um, you know, I close my window and I turn my fan off because I want the audio to be crisp. Of course, only the best here. Uh, and I've got through a freaking pitcher of water. <sighs> Man, I'm dying. I didn't learn this in Pokemon. What is this? You know, so it's funny when when we got on to talking about sapphires and rubies, my brain immediately went to Pokemon. Who knew that? Who knew that sapphires were made of? I already forgot. Sapphires are made of titanium. I'm and sorry to else? disappoint, but I can't find my hematite. I think it's in my garage somewhere. Oh. I have hematite that's red already. Hematite that's red already. Yeah, so it's like you can see some oh, of the yeah, gray yeah. in there. So both of those and colors the, are natural. Like it's all the same thing. Mm-hmm. But it's just red and gray. If I take a streak plate like this, you would normally just want to put it down on your surface because it can break. And you just kind of... Oh, yeah. Re a red-brown streak. Look at that. Yep. From a gray... And... Partially gray rock. But it would always look like that. Like the streak yes, is the always going to look like that no matter what. That's interesting. Yeah, this is a classroom mineral collection you can get off of geology.com for like 30 There's a whole tray of rocks. Yeah, lots of stuff like bauxite and sulfur. What's the really bright yellow one? What is that? Oh, okay. I didn't know it looked like that. Mm -hmm. Does the Pretty rock bright. smell in that form? Does it smell? You, yeah, a little bit. It's <laughs> any Don't of taste the, it. You need, you need to powder it to let oxygen bond to the sulfur. Ugh. It kind of looks like it kind of looks like egg yolk though. Like that's interesting. It does. You know? No it does wonder it smells like, like eggs. Oh, it does look like egg yolk. Yeah. Got little topazes. Tons Ooh. of stuff. Quartz that's pink, even though it's still just cold. Oh, here's some halite. Perfect cubes. Perfect ninety degree angles. Oh yeah, that's to do with the crystal lattice structure yep. or something. Yeah. Sodium and chlorine fit together beautifully in these cube structures. And they so break it's the beautifully. same composition as salt, like yeah, it's salt. Just a I mean, I could different arrangement. Oh, it's so salty. That's a lot of salt. Uh, she licked the rock for anyone listening. <laughs> Ugh. Which one of them tastes best? We were trying to get to the bottom of this earlier. Um, I don't want to taste all these rocks. I mean, how many of them are safe? Food safe? I don't know. Probably I might none. have put acid on some of these too, so I right. might have just eaten hydrochloric acid. But that's just what's in our stomach. Oh, it'll be. You know, it's old. I'm sure it's fine. Um, someone asked, "How do you stop them just turning to powder?" But well, they don't just oxidize. It just depends on the mineral. Some minerals do oxidize in in ambient air, but um, most of mine don't. How many of these rocks are food grade? 
Don't eat your rocks. If you feel like eating rocks, you probably have a disorder called pica, where your body is craving minerals and things that you're deficient Dude, in. My fun fact lately is being the guy who ate a plane. Do, do you know about the guy who ate a plane? A plane? Yeah, he ate like a whole plane. What are you talking about? He ate How do you a, eat plane? a whole plane. Bit by bit. Like a tiny, tiny airplane? It was a small plane. Or a big, yeah, it was like, like Boeing. A, no, it was like a. Oh, I don't want to say a Cessna because I actually don't know anything about planes. But he, yeah, he took, he had pica and and he was renowned for eating weird things. Oh, here's Boeing. He's in jet. <laughs> yeah. He was renowned for eating weird things. And yeah, he, he threw over the course of like, I, I want to say at least like a couple years, he was, he was eating this plane. Jesus. Um, just like one bolt at a time. I don't know. I feel like bits of metal's fine. But the tie, the tires, and like the windshield. I did he have a good I, dipping sauce? Did I he hope die? So. Is uh, he okay? Is he okay? I'm gonna have to look it up. The guy who ate a plane. So I'm gonna learn Michael Michael Lotito. Uh, famous for deliberately this? consuming indigestible objects. Uh, he was called Mo Monsieur Mange Too, Mr. Eat All. Um, he holds the record for the strangest diet in the Guinness Book of World Records. He died of natural causes. So, sure. But, natural? you know, he was 57, so, like, he didn't live the longest. But, uh, yeah, it was a Cessna 150 light aircraft. Uh, oh my god. Okay, no, it gets weirder. It I gets mean, weirder. I know what? that there are disorders where people eat random objects, but... Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what it was based on? It wasn't... He had an eating disorder known as pica, which is a psychological disorder characterized by an appetite for substances that are largely non-nutritive. So he did uh, have He pica. also had a thick lining in his stomach and intestines, which allowed his consumption of sharp metal without suffering injury. And digestive juices that were unusually powerful... So, this guy was built to eat planes. <laughs> what? <laughs> he was built to eat planes. He had, he his his digestive juices were actually too powerful for him to eat soft foods. Bananas and hard-boiled eggs made him sick, but he was built to eat planes. He ate 18 bicycles, 15 shopping carts, 7 TV sets, 6 chandeliers. Did he not two... eat anything normal? He must have, right? Like, to live. But it, throughout the course of his life, he ate a lot of things. He ate his Guinness Award plaque. Which is just beautiful. That's poetry. Plain on every plate, the dream. Um, what the fuck, man? So I, there you go. I'm going to go back to bed today after this. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody let this person into a Target? Well, he ate 15 shopping carts, so it, oh, I think no. the exterior of the Target is the, the big issue. Catch him in the parking lot. With... He's just eating one of the cement fucking balls in the front of the Target. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Ugh. So yeah, that's the life of Michael Lotito. What's the most... <laughs> oh, okay. No, this is... Oh, this leads me to a genuine question. What's the point of eating gold? What, what's the deal with that? What's the gold leaf? What's the obsession? Is there any reason? There isn't. There's no seen... point. You just shit it out. It's a decorative well, thing we... that makes things more expensive so people will buy it. Have you eaten it? No. I want to I mean, know what I've it had Goldschlager like. before, which is a 
uh, liqueur that, like back in the day when I used to drink, I I had this. It's like a cinnamon liqueur, but they put these little gold leaves. It has gold leaves in, in it. it. Yeah. I just like the flavor of it. It's not all that expensive. I don't yeah, understand why Yeah, but you don't taste the gold. gold no, obviously. it's just in there for fanciness, and you don't digest it. I think you just shit it out. Because we have a lot of minerals. It's, it, I don't think, soluble in our stomach, Koiba. Right. Well, I, I think I, any... I don't know about poisonous, but it's not a heavy metal, right? Like, for so. example, cinnabar, um, I recently learned a mercury sulfide. Uh, it doesn't, it's it's not soluble um, if you Another lick Pokemon it in things, thing, even though it's way. a mercury sulfide. And so my, my buddy was like, oh, I'll totally lick some cinnabar on your stream. And I'm like, oh, my God. But, uh, I mean, I personally wouldn't lick the mercury sulfide still out of fear, but it's not soluble. I mean, if you ate it, that might be a different story. So don't eat it, because stomach acid could dissolve some minerals, all the carbonates, for example. And that yeah, would, let's say you, you ate some malachite, time. copper poisoning. Yeah, mercury can really fuck you up. Yeah. How... Something... So, th this actually came to me a few days ago, and I can't even remember where from, but copper... <coughs> in its, like... Oh, I'm, try I'm trying to remember exactly where I where I saw this it was something to do with copper bowls it was a video it was a video by a chef talking about cooking with copper and how cooking with copper can potentially be dangerous but if you don't cook acidic foods it's fine so copper is used very early like early humans because mm -hmm. you find in its natural state is can be found basically just as lumps of copper right you can yeah Whereas something like iron is more commonly found in an ore that you have to extract yes. it from. So it, why, how does, <laughs> how does that happen? Like, why do you find just lumps of copper versus iron being part of a, on, an ore more of the time? It depends on how its ability to oxidize and it's it depends on the environment in which it forms. Iron is, well, ever since oxygen came about and filled our atmosphere about 2.5 billion years ago we had what's called the great oxygenation event and a lot of um that iron became oxidized and turned into hematite or magnetite so grays and reds so we had bands of grays and reds and grays and reds and grays and reds all of a sudden all over the earth that right. were about 2.5 billion years old and uh, so we know iron oxidizes extremely well however if iron is in an environment where there's not oxygen, it'll bond preferentially to sulfur next if sulfur is available. So then you'll get things like pyrite, for example. And pyrite forms, for example, in a lot of oil reservoirs because it's anoxic. There isn't oxygen down there. So it tends to bond with the sulfur produced by the um, organic materials that decay. Where's cool. copper? As for copper, I don't know why not, it... Not as good at making friends? I guess it doesn't oxidize as easily is my guess. That's a good question for my my friends over at Mindat. Mm. Yes, gold does tend to form on its own. It has a really low melting temperature, if I remember correctly, so it forms last in a melt, typically. That could be the same with copper, then. It could be. It could be. Right. Silver also forms and forms itself as a as an ore too, and it can be. Um, it can be silver in and of itself, but it often does bond with other things. Some ores bond with things easily and some don't. I guess it's likely to do with the conditions on which it forms, and it probably has to do with something chemically about that element that I don't know about. 
what is it in uh in particular well i guess metals especially that makes them better conductors than oh metallic bonds right so quartz for mean? example like so quartz for example has um covalent and I, I think just covalent bonds so it's a pretty hard mineral and it's not very good at conducting things although it does have piezoelectricity which i can explain in a moment it's pretty cool um okay. it it doesn't conduct very well it's better most most of these rocks are very good as insulators but when you get metallic bonds involved the electrons aren't really stationary they're floating around all about all of the atoms throughout the structure constantly such that well electricity can flow through those things and they're excellent conductors because those electrons are just swimming around um right can just be exchanged freely exactly like what albel said uh so so metallics tend to be great superconductors whereas these guys they don't have loose electrons floating around they're stationary to the element or the atom on which they're bound to or the two elements if they're exchanging and sharing electrons but um for the most part they're not great as conductors because of that the works with types of okay bonds. electricity moves through the free the, the free electrons that are moving around the the compounds electricity can flow through mm -hmm. what about heat why does it work with heat because heat um there's already there's already ener potential energy in there and when you heat it up it, it it generates more it generates energy so that heat turns into kinetic energy potentially and uh can allow electricity to be produced heat and pressure would be the two things that would uh theoretically make energy and you could do the same with a piezoelectric piece of quartz because it's kind of strange, but quartz, for example, rubies, sapphires, they're used in watches because they have a specific speed at which they oscillate if you put them under pressure. So when you put them under pressure, and pyroelectric is a thing too, or temperature in the case of pyroelectric, but this guy's piezoelectric. So piezoelectric means pressure, pyroelectric right. means heat. So the piezoelectric stuff, you put pressure on them in a specific orientation on that crystal, it'll vibrate naturally. It'll start to vibrate naturally and it will then produce oscillations at a very specific frequency, which people can use in a variety of pieces of technology, even phones. Um, so quartz under pressure oscillates or vibrates. Yes, it can. If it's on the right axis, yes. That makes you wonder how people figured this. that out. You know what I mean? Uh, that's a great question. And there's, yeah. probably, there's probably papers in history on that. Um, yeah, probably. Because like... these, these materials are used throughout material science because of their their properties. They're weird yeah. little properties on the chemical scale that I don't even know every one of them. I mean, there's 5,700 plus minerals on this planet. And I only know, you know, so much about so many of them. Um, and of course, I'm always learning more. But uh, there's a lot more piezoelectric and pyroelectric minerals out there than people realize. And of course, there's tons of metallics that allow for... Um, energy transfer so <laughs> i mean uh, i don't know that like out of the the it's five thousand say five thousand seven hundred more than five thousand seven hundred yeah the do international mineralogical association found? yeah they're they identify 40 to 50 every year 
Oh my god. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. These are I mean these are becoming well, this mineral only exists in this one country in this location. And yeah. now we found a second location. We, so, I, I think there's a similar thing with elements on on the periodic table where it's like I, re I remember as a kid, there's there's like that little section at the bottom of the periodic table that's like a bunch of random, like, I don't know, eums. And like Einsteinium is one of them. And I was like, what the <laughs> heck is this? It's like, oh, you only find that in the aftermath of the explosion of a nuclear bomb for like five seconds. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. Like, that's yep. awesome. That's why uh, any of the we only we only account for naturally occurring elements. So I just ignore all yeah. the rest and pretend they don't exist. Hey, so I'm are, wait, are there some? Hold on, are there some funky man-made minerals uh, outside of yeah. you know recreating diamonds and stuff? Is there anything like? There's some really cool materials. Original? I don't know about. Minerals well, yeah, there wouldn't so be minerals much. definitively, I guess. Like, um, what is it called? Alanon? Oh, trinitite is actually one. Yeah, because of nuclear bombs. So, basically, if you have a an explosion from a nuke and it hits the ground, you're going to basically completely liquefy and then resolidify the ground beneath that thing pretty instantaneously such that you end up with a mineral called trinitite that's man-made. Oh. Um, you get a similar thing with meteorite impacts, but it's not trinitite. That would be um, like moldavite and uh, tektites. Those are tektites. Those aren't man-made. What's um, what's the, what's the deal with space rocks? What are space rocks made of? What's the moon made of? <laughs> While we're moon is mostly made of uh, plagioclase and feldspar, so the same stuff that our most of our planet is largely made of surficially. So there really isn't a lot of any. It's pretty similar to the to the Earth, which is why it it does correlate with the theory that the moon basically came from the planet based on a collision um, billions and billions of years ago. Just hundreds of billions got, of years ago got knocked away as the so earth basically was getting there was a, shit together yeah there was a collisional event that tore apart parts of earth and parts of earth started rotating around um the protoplanet that was earth and then earth finally came together and all those little pieces coalesced into what we think is the moon and huh. that's kind of how that formed that was about and four billion years ago i want to say apparently yeah and uh, uh one, one last thing about space rocks yeah. Because you said about uh, meteorite impacts. Are, me yes. are meteorites all made of different stuff? Like uh, how, yes. how much we looked into meteorites? Probably a there lot. There are classifications of meteorites, and this does go out of my area of expertise quite okay. a bit. But from what I remember, there are metallic meteorites. There are stony meteorites. So that means more like just rock. The basic yeah. building rocks, right? Nothing metallic. Um, and then there's chondritic meteorites where you get little pieces of other minerals within the meteorite itself. So you can get pelicite as a chondritic meteorite, for example. And the chondrites would be the little green olivines. And the, I guess the matrix, for lack of a better term, would be the metallic stuff surrounding them. So anything with little pieces of other stuff would be chondritic. And then the little pieces would be chondrites. <laughs> rocky yeah, rocky, things, stony, stony things, things. things. Mm -hmm. The three types of space rock that you got to look out for uh, in yep. case one of us, one, one of them collides with us someday and we all die. And most of the meteorites that do hit Earth are very small, pea-sized, pebble-sized, gravel-sized. At least by the time they're... they hit the ground anyway. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, there are not very many giant meteorites. And if there were, we'd have a lot of uh, hard times ahead of us. Yeah, there's like a, there's like a... I want to say somewhere in South America, there's a huge bowl that could be the the remnants of a a meteorite strike. I think South America that they I think people they theorize was 
potentially the crater left by the 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 meteorite that it caused the dinosaurs to go extinct. Oh, but that's Chicxulub. Right. It's the third largest meteor impact crater on Earth, and it does exist. Um, yeah. It might have been the final straw that killed the dinos. The dinos were already on their way out. It didn't see the dinosaurs. Could have brought alien event. bacteria with it too that diseased all the dinosaurs. You never know. They were already dying, is the thing, and uh, they were probably going to go extinct. A lot of those species were going extinct regardless. Um, there is a lot of debate on the dinosaur extinction and that yeah, happened about sixty-six million years ago, and uh, there's some theories on it. I I I can't say which one is better than the other but it's we, uh definitely I, at this definitely point, a big just pick whichever you find the most fun right because i mean it was well, so long I, ago I how are we ever one, really gonna know you know because of evidence if we get more geologic evidence but uh it does suggest so far it suggests that they were basically already on their way out and that that impact crater kind of finalized their story right unfortunately that, uh, and that, i guess that's like the broadly accepted it was probably mm -hmm. They were going it's the most and widely accepted hit. theory as of right, right now, yeah. Um, oh, and the Deacon Traps is another theory too. But that's a basically a shit ton of volcanic activity to the extent that it was actually um, able to affect the climate and cause a global cooling event. Because people don't understand that more volcanism actually might cause cooling, not the other way around. The Well, people think... People theorize. I'm sure. I'm sure you know. Like, if or when Yellowstone erupts, there would be so much ash and whatever in the mm -hmm. atmosphere that it would, it would reduce the amount of sun. It would sunlight or that reaches the Earth, and and that's what causes like the global cooling event. I guess. I remember when, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce the name. I'm usually pretty good at that kind of thing, but the Icelandic volcano erupted a long time ago. Agardasfjall, the most recent eruption. <laughs> I have no idea, I'll be honest. I just remember that There's there so were many. like flights grounded in the UK. It was like AF oh, Yaliokol or something. AF Yaliokol, yeah, 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 that's the one. I think is a lot of J's, and, uh, a lot of L's. It starts with an E. AF Yaliokol, I believe, is how it's kind of some, pronounced. And then there's like Grimsvat, um, which I think had actually a bigger explosion, but didn't disrupt the airports. And it was pretty much, I think one was like 2010 and one was 2014, I think. But they're both pretty big subglacial volcanoes that aren't to be scoffed at for sure. Yeah. Iceland's got a lot of volcanic activity because they're not only on a hot spot, they're, on, they're also on a spreading ridge. So there is a ton of volcanic activity. And I want to move there. <laughs> I think, I I think it's there a, and a beautiful place. It looks a little bit moon landscape-ish in parts. Probably I've never because been. of all of the like, volcanic remnants. I'm going to end up in Scandinavia someday. I want to. Honestly, I, I'm hoping to as well because I want to go to Finland. Uh, yes. I'd love to live in Finland. Finland looks great. But I don't know if I would want to be that close to uh, Iceland, close to volcanoes. I don't think I could Oh, I'm good that. with it. I would have to go at least <laughs> once because they have all the natural hot springs that's like... Water, yes. water is like piped across the country and everything is just this beautiful spring water. Geothermal that, energy. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the country's like heated by geothermal energy and all this stuff. It's amazing. Um, it is amazing. But there are but also it's hard to immigrate there. there. It's a little spooky. I want to do it. 
I will go to every volcano and I will film all of them and stream all of the volcanoes. Don't just Iceland. don't get close enough that you I don't know die. I guess well, I'm I'm not one of those idiots. Don't worry. I might actually be one of those idiots because I'm that into volcanoes. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I, I think mostly what I'm worried about is just a little bit too much enthusiasm and. Oh, slowly, lava slowly, death! Right. How <laughs> how scary is Yellowstone? How should we be worried? Mm. No. No. Everybody's always so worried about Yellowstone, and it's not it's showing really any activity. Big. It is huge, yes. It's huge and it is scary, but it's not the only super volcano on our planet. We How have another long will one we in know California. in advance? Mm, a couple months, maybe. Okay, that's if, fine. I can I can go at, for a couple months. At best, maybe a month or two. I mean, that's about what Mount St. Helens gave us. A month it just or two, depends. Borderline extinction event. It just depends good. because you can have you can have an eruption without any signals or signs, but typically, most of the time, volcanoes are going to give you information and excess gas influxes or outfluxes rather and uh excess earthquake swarms and excess ground deformation and things are just changing and the signals of the earthquakes are changing and you could tell magma is moving because of all these things such that oh shit we should probably warn people and evacuate and then they do that usually upon uh any kind of signs of reawakening so usually people are able to be kept safe but the thing is is again this isn't it's not 1,000% perfect, right? You can right. have an eruption that just happens. It's unlikely, oh, well, but okay, it can I happen. Actually, I don't like that. I don't like hearing that very much at it's all. It's unlikely. It's unlikely, but it can happen. It's very unlikely. Me as a geologist, I'm not worried that we wouldn't have some kind of a sign. I'm not worried about it. I'm pretty sure that we would have some kind of a signal or sign that would allow for mass evacuation. So, no, well, Yellowstone doesn't scare me at all. I'm... I, I'm... Where... <laughs> I don't know anything about... I'm more concerned about... about the other super volcanoes that people don't think about. Well, you know, they aren't in America, so they don't matter, right? That's basically how the global news cycle <laughs> works, right? And I hate it. I hate it so much because I'm like, let's Where... learn about water issues in the world. It's like, here's stuff about America. I'm like, no. Well, I mean, I, I, water issues on the West Coast is a pretty... It's huge, it's and bad. I cover it constantly, but yeah. I want to cover it globally because it's an issue globally. Yeah. The, the, mean, the Southwest water issues are, yeah. I mean, I, I, do, I do want to emphasize that climate change and the rate at which we are using water are two big, two very different issues. Um, people are often blaming the lack of water on climate change, and it's human stupidity. That has caused the lack of water, not climate change. I want to be very clear about well, that. Well, that's two things that they do at least have in common, is that human stupidity has been the root cause of both. So that's Oh, yeah. I mean, we've something. never respected the, the environment. Never once have we tried to live with nature. We have always tried to fight it and cage Rise it and it. keep it in little, tri little places that we want it to be so we can live where we want. And, well, that's not exactly how things are working. And it's pretty clear that we're disrupting the system. It, the ecosystem specifically. The world will be fine. Well, on that note, I desperately have to piss because I've chugged like a whole fucking pitcher of water <laughs> while I've been going. Doomers! So, one last question. Yeah. What's your favorite mineral? It's phalerite. I love it. Do you have any? Yeah, I have a ton of it. Ah! My UV caught it. I caught it. Oh my god. What is this freaking phasmophobia? Is this a UV flashlight falling around? Yeah, there's a lot of shit in here. 
Chat, for any of you unfamiliar with Rocket Sage, obviously check her out. She's a freaking geologist and science communicator on Twitch. It's amazing. And she's a great content creator and also plays video games. But go give her a follow, of course. It, it, it was really great for her to, to be able to come on. Um, and thank thanks to so many of you from Sage's community also who, who came through. Oh. It's got it a very weird reflectivity because it's considered submetallic, which I haven't really mentioned. Okay. But it's got a lot of iron in this such that it does reflect a lot of light, but it's technically not opaque. You can actually see through some of the mineral pieces, but it's kind of hard to. This is another sample that I have of just little pieces of sphalerite on the rock. And uh, sometimes they can look really red and yellow and gemmy. And this one, if I shine light through it, you know, it's hard to do it on camera, but you can see some little reds and yellows. I love this piece. It's just um, zinc and, and sulfur. I don't know why I'm so obsessed with it. It's just so dark, but also gemmy at the same time. It looks a little just... like, is obsidian the word? No. It's dark like obsidian. Obsidian is obs is glass, so it doesn't have any kind of structure. Right. Right. Okay. But it might it might kind of look like actually kind of does in the camera. I mean, it's just a very shiny, very dark yeah. mineral. Yeah. So. I can see that. Yeah, volcanic glass is super shiny. All right. Well, but I appreciate you having me on today. Yeah, uh, I really appreciate you much. coming on. I was I was just saying like, well, you had your headphones off, but um, of course, check out Rocket Sage and. The Knowledge Fellowship, a whole gang of of science and, and just, well, science communicators, educators, and content creators. It's great. Um, yes. It's, it, and, you know, we would have done this episode uh, a week ago. Was it a week ago or was it two weeks? Yeah, it was a week ago. Yeah, uh, which at the time I was incredibly grateful because you accepted such on such short notice. And then, of course, COVID. So I hope you recover from that uh, best oh, I'm as you can. Doing pretty well. Yeah. I'm just kind of tired. Um, but if you don't already follow Rocket Sage, of course, check her out. And um, I think, yeah, I think that's going to do it. So, I mean, if you've got, you know, anything anything, anything else you want to shout out or anything like that. Just then go forth and share science that you learned. There that's you go. the only thing I require. There you go. Share science that you learned. Beautiful. Thanks again for having me, man. I really enjoyed today. Yeah.